Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. My name is Claire Lehman and I am Editor-in-Chief of Quillette. Quillette is where free thought lives. We are an independent grassroots platform for heterodox ideas and fearless commentary. Our podcast is a team effort and is jointly hosted by myself, Associate Editor Toby Young and Canadian Editor Jonathan Kay. You can support our podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash Quillette and becoming a monthly patron. By becoming a monthly patron, you'll also receive our weekly newsletter. Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. I'm Jonathan Kay, Quillette's Toronto-based Canadian editor. This week, the United Kingdom got a new Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, a man known well to the British public as writer, editor, activist, London mayor, member of parliament, sex scandal protagonist, and all-around firebrand. On Tuesday, my Quillette colleague Toby Young published an appreciative profile of Johnson on our website called Cometh the Hour, Cometh the Man. In his article, Young not only traces the arc of Johnson's unique career, but also relates his memories from Oxford University and The Spectator magazine, where the two men cross paths. Many critics of Johnson are wont to compare him to the likes of Donald Trump and even Hungary's Viktor Orban. But Toby, who once co-wrote a comedic play about Johnson, takes a very different view. He spoke to me for the Quillette podcast from London. Here are excerpts from our conversation. So one New York Times headline that I was reading said something to the effect of Boris Johnson was just elected prime minister by 1% of the British population. What do they mean by that? What they mean by that is that Boris has just won a leadership election within his own party. And the way that leadership election worked, there were initially 10 candidates, all of them conservative members of parliament. Uh, And the, the election was triggered when Theresa May, who was prime minister until... Wednesday, um, uh, announced that she was intending to resign. Um, so that triggered a leadership election. Ten Conservative members of Parliament threw their hat into the ring. Um, there were then a series of votes uh, by the Parliamentary Conservative Party, so members uh, uh, members of Parliament who were also Conservatives. Um, and uh, each time a vote was held, uh, if the candidates didn't get above a certain threshold, they were eliminated. And then the candidates in the last place were eliminated till they got down to the final two. And Boris was in the final two. And uh, the choice of which one to pick from the final two went to the entire membership of the Conservative Party across the United Kingdom, which numbers about, I think, 150,000 people or thereabouts. So that's what's meant by 1% chose the Prime Minister. For anybody who's listening, say, in the United States, where this kind of process may seem obscure, this is not unheard of in parliamentary democracies, where when a leader steps down uh, between general elections, the the Prime Ministership can change. It happens in, say, uh, Australia and New Zealand, for instance. Yes. Americans um, might be slightly confused by this because it's almost like having a primary, a closed primary, and then whoever wins the closed primary automatically becomes president. uh, And there's no intervening presidential election. Um, But we don't have a presidential system. As you say, we have a parliamentary system. And that means that if the leader of a party, who is also the prime minister, because typically uh, the leader of the party with the most members of parliament becomes the prime minister. So if that leader steps down in between elections, then the party, 
selects a successor who then automatically becomes the Prime Minister. But having said all that, I think it's likely that Boris Johnson will lead his party into a general election fairly soon. No Prime Minister likes to govern without an electoral mandate for very long. Before we talk more about Boris Johnson and about the article you wrote about him for Quillette, uh, I'd like to just pause and speak briefly about his predecessor, Theresa May, who was in office under very difficult circumstances and lasted, I think, a lot longer than many people expected. My sense from this side of the Atlantic was that she endured her difficult situation with perhaps as much grace as was possible? Yes, she was in a very difficult position. Um, she wouldn't have become Prime Minister had um, Boris's campaign uh, to succeed David Cameron, her predecessor, uh, not blown up on the launch pad. So in 2016, in the immediate aftermath of the EU referendum, which to everyone's surprise was won by the Leave side, David Cameron, then the Prime Minister, resigned. He resigned on the morning of the referendum result. Um, there was then a, a, a leadership election, um, and uh, Boris uh, was intending to stand in that election, and his campaign manager was another Conservative MP called Michael Gove. Uh, but Michael Gove, just before Boris announced his candidacy, um, uh, decided he could no longer in good conscience support Boris, and instead threw his own hat into the ring. So effectively, Boris and Michael were the two most prominent politicians who'd effectively led the Leave campaign. Um, uh, they were suddenly at each other's throats and they effectively cancelled each other out. Boris, in the end, withdrew. Michael fought on but didn't do very well. And Theresa May, who'd campaigned for Remain in the referendum, um, uh, came up through the middle and unexpectedly won and became the Prime Minister. Um, uh, and as you say, she, had a, she was in a very difficult position. She found herself initially in not such a bad position. She inherited a parliamentary majority from her predecessor. Um, uh, but it wasn't a very large majority. And she decided quite early on that she wanted to go for a, uh, a version of Brexit, uh, which many people, not me, but many people thought was quite extreme because it involved completely extricating Britain from its trading relationship and all the trading arrangements that have been put in place over the years, its trading relationship with the EU. So she, she decided to take Britain out of the customs union and out of the single market and then renegotiate our trading relationship with the EU. That was her proposal. Uh, and she felt that in order to get that through Parliament, in order to get parliamentary approval for that particular form of Brexit, she would need a larger parliamentary majority than the one she'd inherited. So she held another election. She held an election in 2017. Uh, and she expected to win because Labour was being led then as it is now by Jeremy Corbyn, who is probably the most left wing Labour leader in the party's history. Um, uh, she, she expected to win to increase the Conservatives majority. But in fact, uh, she lost the Conservative majority. So she ended up the leader of the Conservative Party in a hung parliament, had to enter into what's called a confidence and supply arrangement, somewhere short of a coalition with another much smaller party, the Democratic Unionist Party, a Protestant Northern Irish party. Um, and it became very difficult then to get any kind of Brexit deal through parliament because she didn't have a majority. Um, and uh, she, 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 she negotiated a deal with the EU, which satisfied no one. Um, some people thought it was too mushy. Other people thought it was too hard. Uh, she tried three times to get
get that deal through Parliament. She made a number of concessions. She engaged in some horse trading and politicking. But ultimately, it wasn't enough. And it became clear that while she continued to lead the party, she was never going to get a deal, her deal, through Parliament. So she eventually decided to resign early this year, and that triggered the leadership election. But as you say, uh, she did endure the uh, circumstances in which she found herself, even though to a certain extent they were of her own making because she lost the majority she'd inherited because she proved to be in part such a poor campaigner during the general election campaign she fought in 2017. But she endured uh, uh, the circumstances she found herself in with some stoicism, some fortitude, and I think was generally regarded as um, exemplifying uh, some of the better aspects of the British character uh, in the last couple of years. You know, it's been really humiliating for her. She's suffered one parliamentary defeat after another. She's had no real domestic political programme to speak of because she hasn't had a majority and so can't really get an ambitious domestic programme through Parliament. Uh, She's been attacked on all sides. She'd suffered numerous resignations from her cabinet, including the resignation of Boris Johnson, who was her foreign secretary for a couple of years. So she's really had to put up with quite quite a lot. And she has she has emerged, I think, out of out of that maelstrom as a kind of long suffering, but, you know, um, uh, stoical person who I think people think, you know, is patriotic at heart, fundamentally decent, but just ultimately not really up to the job. Let's talk a little bit about Boris Johnson, now the Prime Minister, of course. To my surprise, we've been colleagues for a few years, but I I did not know this. You know Boris Johnson fairly well, and the relationship started in university. Uh, In fact, you, you open your piece with a description of his performance at the Oxford Union Debating Society, in which he seemed to fumble the ball the entire debate, and yet somehow prevailed simply by force of personality, uh, which seems to be kind of the way he's handled his political career. He was maybe in his early 20s at the time or a teenager still? Yeah, I think he was 19. Um, Yeah, so I walked into the Oxford Debating Chamber, this august, famous debating society. Um, It was a fresh, a fresh, a freshers debate. So it was for first year students and it was an opportunity for us to try and impress the Oxford Union, the membership of the union, and to uh, embark on our own, you know, mini political careers. Uh, And everyone was um, trying to display their mastery of the kind of arcane rules of this society, some of them dating back to its founding in 1823. Uh, uh, Everyone was really trying their best, trying to appear as polished uh, and as experienced as they possibly could in the way that, you know, naive first years will do, wanting to fit in and wanting to be approved of. Here was this guy at the dispatch box um, uh, seeming to make a case for, I think the motion was, um, this house would reintroduce capital punishment uh, and doing it in a kind of parody of the high style in British politics. So rather oraton, lots of rhetorical flourishes, a kind of deep bassoon. Um, and, uh, and then midway through seemed to suddenly startle himself, look up, Uh, and forget what the motion was he was supposed to be arguing for, ask the audience what it was, when they then told him, thought, well, but but I I don't agree with that, and then moved from one side of the dispatch box to the other and started making an equally passionate, eloquent case for the alternative point of view. And then midway through that, after about five minutes, a kind of light bulb appeared over his head, and uh, and suddenly another argument for the other side appealed, uh, 
occurred to him and he then crossed again and it was as though he'd been pulled out of his bed you know in the middle of the night had had no chance to prepare and had just been plonked down in front of an audience of 500 people and typically if someone appeared in the union uh, particularly at a freshers debate so hopelessly unprepared they would be mercilessly uh, jeered and uh, booed by the audience but actually he was doing it in such an amusing way um, uh, it was like a kind of uh, polished uh, comedy routine uh, and, and obviously so it wasn't as if you know you thought that he was genuinely unprepared and had forgotten his speech and didn't know what the motion was it was all obviously there was all obviously an element of contrivance about it uh, it was like a very polished very slick and I have to say very funny comedy comic routine uh, he was almost like a borscht belt comedian it was as though he'd done this you know hundreds of times before it was so slick every moment his timing was brilliant and the whole audience was just guffawing with laughter and you could feel this kind of flow of warmth and love towards this kind of this this sort of odd buffoonish figure and he had this odd quality i think of of, of on the one hand being kind of befuddled and unprepared and seemingly kind of constantly startling himself um, uh, whilst at the same time obviously being extraordinarily ambitious and capable uh, I like to describe him as um, sort of a cross between um, how to think of an American character uh, sort of Al Franken on the one hand and sort of Mr Incredible on the other or, or, or maybe 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 Stan Laurel from Laurel and Hardy uh, a combination of that and kind of Nietzsche's Ubermensch. You know, you, you felt this kind of odd combination of um, of kind of Bertie Wooster, uh, but with a tangible will to power. So you've got Bertie Wooster in your piece. Your words are, uh, this is, of course, the Wodehouse character, Bertie Wooster trying to pass himself off as Eustace H. Plimsoll when appearing in court after overdoing it on boat race night. But of course, what's funny about Bertie Wooster, uh, and of course, uh, the character is played by Stan Laurel, is that they are not self-aware. But there's a contradiction here because it strikes me that you're suggesting that Johnson is exhibiting the very height of self-awareness. He deliberately presents himself in this sort of calculated buffoonish way as a way to disarm people. Is that the case? Yes, I think that's right. I mean, it's um, uh, to, to imagine what it's like for people who haven't seen him. Imagine the scene in Four Weddings and a Funeral when the Hugh Grant character uh, gives the toast at the the big wedding um and and he and he appears to um be slightly embarrassed and it's as though things are occurring to him in the moment um but clearly it's 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 a kind of comic routine and and, and that that's the kind of shtick it's uh it, you know you're pretending that you're slightly befuddled and you're caught out and things are only just occurring to you and you're making a terrible hash of everything but at the same time it's obvious that you're hamming it up and that this is just uh, a routine and i think but, but you think that that wouldn't work in politics you know you can see how that might work on you know in a music hall um or in a comedy club you think well why does it work on the national stage uh, in politics. And I think one of the reasons is that um, uh, when politicians normally deliver a speech, you know, uh, they fake sincerity. Uh, they try and create the impression that they absolutely believe in whatever it is they're saying. They are completely 
on message. Uh, but but I think most people on listening to politicians deliver a stump speech don't quite believe it. And it's as though the politician is taking them for fools by imagining that they don't realise he's just putting across a particular message because he thinks it's in his political interest to do so and this is the right position for him to take. Uh, so if you if you if you do that but at the same time do it in a way to signal that you don't really believe it. If you don't try and fake sincerity but by contrast you're openly insincere, you weirdly come across as much more authentic than typical run of the mill everyday politicians and you don't take the audience for fools, you let them in on the joke and in that way treat them as grown-ups uh, or and make other politicians seem somehow very unsophisticated and crude and patronising in contrast to you and it, and that, that has for, for some odd reason worked, I don't know any other politician who's managed to quite pull that off but Boris has managed to parlay this into, you know, the top job in British politics. Johnson has gotten himself into trouble. I, just one example was, I think you mentioned it in your column, he compared women wearing the niqab, or burqa in the case of the full body covering, uh, to mailboxes, you know, with the slit at the top and the full body covering below that. Has he ever apologized for saying things like this? I, I don't think you have to be a social justice warrior to find some of his stuff actually legitimately offensive. You know, he, he's a goldmine for um, offence archaeologists. I mean, you really don't need to employ an opposition researcher to find offensive things that Boris has written or said. Uh, he's been a prolific journalist. His, he began his career as a journalist, I think, in 1998, but was also a journalist when he was an Oxford student. Uh, so there's, you know, just a cornucopia of material there uh, to sift through looking for kind of uh, unacceptable beyond the pale remarks and you know these have been thrown at him every time he's run for office um, but they don't appear to have ever really done much damage um, and I think uh, I think one reason for that is because um, he can always claim uh, that uh, rather than expressing the offensive sentiments in question um he was satirizing them um uh, or in the case of uh the uh, comments he made uh, that you just quoted he, he points out that these were made in a column in the daily telegraph in which he was arguing against the burqa ban in denmark and i think uh, that's one of the reasons this particular mud hasn't stuck attempts to portray him as a homophobe or an islamophobe or just as a straightforward racist uh, haven't been very successful because his actions in office um, as a politician have always been fairly liberal so you know he joined a pride demonstration when he was mayor of london wearing a pink Stetson hat. Uh, he's, he's for the most part, uh, always been um, uh, pro-gay rights. Um, he's uh, pro-immigration. On all the big culture war issues, uh, he's uh, somewhere to the left of Donald Trump. So attempts to portray him by engaging in this offence archaeology as a mini Trump or a kind of Victor Orban kind of far-right populist aren't very successful because all his policy positions have been you know conservative but of a liberal kind in the kind of debate that's taking place amongst conservatives in America at the moment between conservative nationalists like Trump and Yaron Hazoni uh, and others and uh, classical liberals uh, he's very much on the classical liberal side Johnson was once your boss I think at the Spectator magazine uh, of course you and I both now have familiarity with the gold standard of bosses in the form of Quillette editor uh, Claire Lehman, uh, high standard to meet. But how was he as a supervisor? 
Well, um, he was quite a hands-off boss. People have tried to um, uh, pin offensive things that were written in The Spectator when he was editor-in-chief on him. But it's fair to say that he didn't read the entire contents of each issue before it was put to bed. Um, my big experience of working for him was um, uh, during that period, a number of sex scandals um, beset the spectator. And it became known in the media as the sextator. And people would joke about, you know, there being something in the water over there. And it was extraordinary. There were these three national sex scandals, one of which involved Boris. The one involving Boris was he was married at the time into his second marriage. And um, he rumours began to circulate that he was having an affair with the deputy editor of the magazine, a woman called Petronella Wyatt. And at that time, he'd become a Conservative MP. He was trying to ride two horses edit The Spectator and make his way in politics. And he'd been appointed um, an arts spokesman for the Conservative Party, though they were in opposition at that time. So he was a shadow arts spokesman. So this was a potential scandal, if he really was, having an affair with the deputy editor. And he told the then leader of the Conservative Party, uh, he described these rumours as an inverted pyramid of piffle, which is very Boris-like language. Um, and uh, and then it emerged that, in fact, they were true and she'd become pregnant by him and had gone on to have an abortion. And so Michael Howard then sacked him. And that, that was one of the only three political scandals. So me and the other drama critic, I was, uh, I, I, I was sharing the uh, drama critic beat with another writer called Lloyd Evans at the time for The Spectator. We thought, well, someone, you know, some enterprising playwright is bound to write a sex set at the spectator and it's going to be a you know a, a west end smash why don't we do it so we put our heads together and we cobbled together this sex farce which we called who's the daddy and uh, you know it, 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 and the, the the boris character you know we made no attempt to disguise him we actually called him boris and the magazine it was all set out was called the spectator and boris had in his office a kind of uh, life-size portrait of margaret thatcher this is in the play not in real life which he'd then pulled down it would turn into a kind of double bed uh, and it was in constant use throughout the play and the play ended with um, the publisher giving birth to triplets, all of whom had a kind of blonde thatch, looked exactly like mini versions of Boris. So it couldn't have been a more blatant lampooning of our boss. And, you know, we were a little bit nervous that uh, he would fire us. You know, most magazine editors, I think, wouldn't take kindly to being sent up so publicly, disrespected so publicly by a couple of junior employees. Um, and uh, and the play was, you know, much to our astonishment, you know, in a West End, off West End venue, a huge success. It sold out, you know, on opening night. Uh, and we were we were terrified that Boris was going to fire us or at least kind of you know, get angry with us and, and it would affect our, our relationship. Um, but actually, he was incredibly cool about the whole thing. His only response was to send us a postcard on opening night, which read, I always knew my life would be turned into a farce. And I'm just glad it's been entrusted to two such distinguished men of letters. Uh, and if he could have used a typeface called irony, he would have done. But that was the extent of his retaliation. Apart from that, it had no impact on our relationship. We carried on uh, uh, on the drama beat at The Spectator thereafter. May I just say how much I admire the British for having proper sex scandals in their journalism industry. I think in Canada, the closest our journalists ever come to a sex scandal is when someone gets misgendered. <laughs> Now, these were these were proper old-fashioned sex scandals. Many people describe him in a word as a protectionist, uh, in that he supported the Leave Brexit campaign. Uh, the Leave Brexit campaign 
uh, misled voters about the extent of the economic advantages that would accompany leaving the European Union and the, the disadvantages that accompany the, the current status quo. Does it give you pause that he was associated with uh, a side of the referendum that most economists, I think, really think led Britain astray? No, that 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 doesn't concern me about him. But it certainly is the reason why I think um, uh, lots of people um, uh, are Boris haters. You know, just as you have Trump derangement syndrome in the US, we have Boris derangement syndrome here in the UK. And he does drive, you know, large swathes of the liberal intelligentsia completely bonkers. But but if I can push back on that, I mean, is it derangement syndrome if the objection is that he has pushed legitimately disastrous economic policies. That would be uh, the rationale, I think, of people who are suffering from Boris derangement syndrome. Uh, But I don't think that 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 is likely to be the result of our leaving the European Union. Um, He's not a protectionist. Um, One of the ways in which he's different from Trump is that he's pro-trade, not just pro-immigration, pro-gay rights, completely sanguine about abortion, uh, but but very much pro-free trade, not a protectionist at all. He's an Adam Smith liberal. Um, and he, he, he always styled himself as one of the leaders of the Leave campaign as a liberal lever, a liberal Brexiteer. And the, the, the argument is that whilst we remain members of the European Union, Britain can't make trade deals with other countries. It can't make a, its own trade deal with Canada, with the US, with Australia. It has to um, uh, uh, just in, it has to it has to uh, join the trade deals uh, made by the European Union with other other countries. Um, and, and so he thinks that uh, Britain will be able to become a global trading superpower uh, outside the European Union. Not a protectionist. Uh, yet he 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 of course as you say, has been accused of having misled people during the EU referendum campaign. And in particular, um, he's been saddled with a claim made on the side of a bus that was kind of uh, featured quite prominently in the Leave campaign, which uh, essentially said that if we leave the EU, uh, the UK will be £350 million a week better off. Um, and uh, the, 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 the way in which the Leave campaign arrived at that figure is that the UK's annual contribution to the EU budget is about 20 billion. And if you divide 20 billion by 52, it comes out as roughly 350 million. Uh, the reason that was singled out as dishonest is because it overlooked the fact that we get about half of that back in the form of rebates and subsidies uh, from the EU. So in fact, our net contribution instead of our gross contribution is about half that. So he was certainly guilty, the Leave campaign was guilty of conflating the gross and the net. Um, I don't think that was you know, out of bounds in the context of a hard-fought, lively referendum campaign. In all electoral contests, both sides tend to engage in hyperbole. And certainly in that contest, the other side engaged in elisions and conflations of its own, which I think were every bit as misleading as the 350 million a week figure. But nonetheless, that that is the kind of, uh, that has become the kind of talismatic um, uh, emblem 
of the dishonesty of the Leave campaign. Um, uh, and uh, a, a, a particular critic of Boris's managed to crowdfund um, a private prosecution against him for having uh, behaved badly in public office, which uh, was recently thrown out by the High Court here. Uh, but yeah, and this is pe- pe- people who are his critics um, put this together with other instances in his past in which he has been dishonest, such as misleading um, Michael Howard, the then leader of the Conservative Party, about his affair with Petronella Wyatt when he's editor to the Spectator. Um, he got fired from The Times, his first job out of university, when he was caught making up a quote. Some of his stories when he was the Brussels correspondent for The Telegraph uh, came under the heading of Too Good to Check, stories like, you know, EU directives about the curvature of bananas and so forth. Um, so, uh, you know, he, 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 has, um, he hasn't always been scrupulously honest and truthful and people think that is typical of the kind of moral character of the man and that's sort of few that's cited by people uh, who who think he'll be a disaster and isn't fit to be prime minister but i think you know i think it's important to stress that that uh, that boris as a divisive figure who drives some people you know uh, uh, crazy with loathing and hatred that dates to his leadership of the leave campaign before that uh, he was uh, not a divisive figure at all you know he managed to win as the conservative mayoral candidate in in london in 2008 he is the only conservative to have ever been elected mayor of london it is generally considered a labor stronghold now that he has the gold ring, he is the prime minister, which, according to your article, that was his ambition as early as his teenage years when he was at Oxford. Uh, what do you think his biggest challenge in office will be? Well, his biggest challenge, without doubt, um, will be extracting the UK from the European Union before the deadline uh, of um, October 31st transpires. Britain was meant to leave the European Union on March the 30th of this year. But Theresa May missed that deadline. Uh, She asked for an extension. It was granted. She then missed the second deadline. She asked for a second extension. That was granted. And the new deadline is October 31st. And Boris has said, you know, he has effectively won this leadership contest by pledging that he will take Britain out of the EU by that deadline. And he'll do it whether he succeeds in getting a new deal with the European Union, which he then gets through Parliament, or not. So he said that he's prepared to leave with or without a deal. Unlike Theresa May, who was only ever prepared to leave uh, with a deal, not prepared to leave with no deal. There's a lot of debate in the UK about how economically damaging leaving the European Union with no deal in place would be. Some people think it would be catastrophic. Others think it would be, you know, nothing nothing more dramatic than the millennium bug, uh, that it's been, you know, overhyped by Remainers and we could cope perfectly well. Uh, So Boris's biggest challenge is going to be, can he, first of all, uh, persuade the European Union to come back to the negotiating table and sweeten the deal that Theresa May managed to negotiate in such a way that he's then able to get it through Parliament? And if he can't, will he then be able to take us out without a deal? Now, Um, uh, The default legal position is, uh, unless the Prime Minister asks for another extension, uh, we leave on October 31st. But but various Remainers in Parliament, or even some Leavers, but who are just very worried about the the consequences of leaving with no deal, are 
frantically scheming away, trying to figure out a way to obstruct Boris's efforts to take us out without a deal, if that's what he ends up doing. And if they succeed in doing that, um, then it looks as though uh, he will be forced to go to the country and hold a general election before we've left. And if he does that, he'll face the prospect of having to fight on two fronts, not just uh, the Jeremy Corbyn-led Labour Party on the left, uh, not just the uh, centre parties, um, uh, but also a new party, the Brexit Party, on his right flank. So Nigel Farage, another charismatic British politician who was uh, one of the leading figures in the Leave campaign in 2016, was the leader of the United Kingdom Independence Party, has now left that party and uh, thought his work was done when the referendum was won. Uh, because we're still in the EU three years later and have missed two deadlines, uh, he, he's formed this new party called the Brexit Party, uh, which has the sole object of taking the UK out of the EU. Uh, and in the European elections earlier this year, election to the European Parliament, uh, the Brexit Party came first and knocked the Conservatives into fifth place. And there are lots of people who voted Conservative in 2017 um, who were convinced that Theresa May was going to take us out by the deadline and are now quite disillusioned. And the worry is that uh, if there's a general election before October 31st, that Boris won't do well enough. He won't persuade enough voters to return, to come back into the Conservative fold, who've defected to the Brexit party, to win a general election. So there's a risk that in that scenario, Jeremy Corbyn could come up through the middle. Um, uh, but, but I think of all the of all the contestants in the leadership election, Boris is thought to be the one most likely to, in those circumstances, if he is forced to have an election before we've left, before October 31st, so, you know, sometime in the next 98 days, uh, that he's more likely to win it than anyone else because he does have this extraordinary election winning ability. Interesting times. And I'm sure this isn't the last time we'll be talking to you about political goings on in Britain. Thanks, John. Good to talk to you. If you would like to support Quillette, please consider becoming a patron. Head to our Patreon page. That's patreon.com forward slash Quillette. If you haven't already, follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Do you like what you're hearing? Perhaps you would like to read more about the issues in today's discussion. Head to Quillette.com where you will find more content.